Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the long overdue next episode of Raising Little Resistors. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Raising Little Resistors. I feel like I should start off with a big apology for the giant gap in bringing this episode to you. I truly hate making excuses, but y'all, finishing up my last semester of law school was really difficult. And then over the last two months, even though we had a lovely in-person style graduation ceremony and then a few days where I just took naps and substitute taught, I then just dove headfirst into prepping for the bar exam full-time. I intended to, but was not able to in my scheduled breaks to come back to this project because I loved it and I thought it would give me life. But truthfully, studying for the bar exam took so much out of me that I didn't really have many breaks. And also, when I did, didn't really feel like I had much energy to do this justice. However, as of this past week, I have officially, woohoo, survived the gauntlet of fire that is the bar exam. And now, in the midst of moving across the country, I finally have some spare time to get back to this project. So all that to say, thank you for your patience. I'm so happy that some of you have decided to come back and give it another shot. This episode, I was joined by the incredible co-founders of a project that began last summer called Camp Equity. Camp Equity was founded by the amazing team of Donnie Belcher, Lauren Burke, and Prisma Herrera, who sadly was not able to jump on the podcast with us, but her work has also been really incredible. Camp Equity is a virtual program that encourages youth to explore social justice movements by connecting them with grassroots leaders all across the country. They offer a sliding scale enrollment that enables wealth redistribution to the change agents with whom they partner, while the breakout style cabin approach allows campers to explore tough topics with diverse peers from all over the country. Their pilot program launched last fall, and they officially started full-time in January 2021. We recorded this conversation back in March 2021, so some of the things have changed. There's been a few updates here and there, but I'm really excited for you to meet them. This is an absolutely incredible conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Again, I'm so grateful today to be welcoming Lauren and Donnie. They are the proud founders and beginners of the Camp Equity Program, which you're going to hear so much about today, and I'm really excited to tell you about. But I'm going to give them just a chance to introduce themselves and to talk a little bit about what led them to being a part of this project today. They both have pretty awesome careers leading up to this point, so hopefully they'll be able to kind of give us a little bit of foundation and explain why they've embarked on this new project. Thank you so much for having us today, Wynn, and a special hello to all of the people who are listening. My name is Donnie Belcher, and I started my career as a high school teacher in the Chicago public school system, which was really kind of the foundation for everything that I've done professionally since. And after 12 years in the classroom, really just felt kind of concerned about what was happening with the school district primarily and wanting to do more to serve students, particularly students who weren't in magnet schools or in, you know, kind of like private schools. So left the classroom and started a nonprofit called Art of Culture, which served Chicago um, young artists who were interested in pursuing professional careers. And that work was transformational because these were young people who did not have access to art classes at school. 
certainly did not have the monetary resources to participate in art classes and that kind of thing. Did that work for eight years and just really continued to be passionate about young people. So I went into consulting really to help other nonprofits to build their capacity and to, you know, encourage other people who looked like me to contribute to their communities in a way. Met Lauren, our wonderful co-founder here at Camp Equity in 2014, when we were both selected, selected as Equine Green Fellows. Instantly was in love with her and, you know, wanted to figure out a way to continue to work together. And in July of last year, Lauren texted me, I have an idea, and we got on the phone. And as they say, the rest is history. So most of my career has been devoted to youth development, education, really working with low-income, primarily Black, primarily young people. And that has just been the thread that has run throughout my entire career. And hi, my name is Lauren Burke. Very honored to be here on this podcast with Donnie, one of my most favorite people in the whole wide world. So I, for those of you who are listening, I'm a white cisgendered woman. I'm 37 years old and I currently am calling in from New England. I live in Connecticut as a lot of white people do. I started out, um, my career, just like Donnie, had a huge passion for helping and working with young people. I actually came at it from a legal pathway. So I went to law school specifically because I was really interested in youth justice and education law. I was particularly interested because in 2002, I had been working as a substitute teacher in Massachusetts educational system. And in 2002, Massachusetts did away with our transitional bilingual education program. I speak Mandarin Chinese. I'd lived in China for a couple of years. And so the kids who I was working with as a translator who once were able to speak both their native language and English in the classroom, now we're really being forced to only speak English. And seeing the detrimental impact that had on the young people, combined with it really being the first time in which I saw how the law had an impact on everyday's lives, right? Because as a white, cisgendered, middle-class woman growing up in Western Massachusetts, I honestly wasn't really impacted by the law in ways in which I could see on a daily basis because our laws are rooted in white supremacy. And so they were meant to protect and help me. So I decided to go to law school. While I was in law school, I became really interested in working on immigration law. I worked with survivors of human trafficking for a while. And then after doing direct legal services for a couple of years, I realized that a huge problem with our legal system was that We don't explain what the mechanisms of the law are. And so it still becomes lawyers who are sort of holding and hoarding this knowledge. And in order for people to access their most basic rights, they have to go to an attorney, which I just think is crazy, especially because if, for example, in immigration, you don't have the right to an attorney. And so we have two and three-year-old children going up in court by themselves. So I started a program where we taught young people what the law were, and so they could go out and teach others what the law was also. From that, started a nonprofit. Again, that's how I met Donnie. We were both running different nonprofits at the time. Grew that organization. And then in 2016, was thinking about so many things, but in part, like, what is the role of white people in the movements? I was a white woman running an organization that only had, I think we only had one white member out of maybe four or 500 and was really looking at the ways in which my privilege allowed doors to be unlocked for me that I know weren't unlocked for other founders. And we have a whole conversation about founder syndrome and the problematic aspects of that. So I decided that I really wanted to work to help 
other founders who had more lived experience and sort of use my privilege to like get rid of the obstacles and honestly take on a lot of the bureaucracy that's honestly not usually fun. So did that, a couple other side projects as, as we all do, Donnie and I are both entrepreneurial hustlers that have a lot of different things going on. And yeah, as Donnie said, July 23rd, this idea popped into my head and I was like, oh my God, I know who I want to do this with. And there we are. That's fantastic. And you both sound like you have such incredible experience that covers a huge range of just both lived experience in the United States, but also geographical locations in the United States and the differences that come between you know, just as someone who grew up in, in, you know, Western New York, we are devoutly anti-New England, down with the Patriots kind of is runs in my blood. But at the same time, it's not really Midwest because it's, it's doesn't necessarily identify with Ohio and Wisconsin and, you know, Illinois and kind of the other states that are in the Midwest. So it's a very odd place to grow up. But I love that you two have kind of smashed together some really different cultural differences that come from just where you live in the United States, which I think a lot of people sometimes really don't understand because they necessarily don't leave their bubbles all the time. But tell me a little bit about, so July of last summer, you know, I was involved here with some of the legal observing for the protests that were happening in Cincinnati and around Southern Ohio. What were the things that kind of got your minds moving towards this idea for Camp Equity? So this is Lauren speaking, you know, I had been thinking for a while, I I remember sitting in my neighbor's backyards and just being like, if I just think hard enough, I should be able to solve this whole online school zooming situation, right? Like, and I literally was, you know, if you're somebody that does entrepreneurial things like Donnie and I are, it's like, you see a problem and you're like, I've got to be able to think of a solution to this. And what what I found to be really interesting in those conversations was there were so many problematic aspects of online schooling, obviously, but what it unlocked was this geographic possibility for young people to not have to be taking, for example, math class with somebody who just lives down the street from them, which again, because of white supremacy and redlining and all those policies tend to be somebody who has the same socioeconomic and racial status as you. And so I think that's sort of when I first who knows, the idea started bubbling in my head. And then with uh, George Floyd's murder, I had both a lot of white people in my life reaching out to me saying like, how do I talk to my kids about this? Which both was, and I'm sure Donnie could talk about this more, both great and also a little exhausting because we've been talking about these things for years and years. And so while I was grateful people were reaching out, I was also just really thinking about what are we missing in that people just this wasn't a fundamental aspect of where they've been in their own social justice journeys for years. And then the third thing was that a lot of people were donating money. That's what a lot of people with resources tend to do, but they were donating money towards organizations like Equal Justice Initiative, which is incredible, LDF, which is incredible, NAACP, which is incredible. But I, through my work, had known of all these incredible lived experience leaders to whom $5,000 would make catalytic change. And so I started Facebook threads where I was like, tell me what you're interested in. I'm going to give you a black led organization and you got to donate to them. And so it was sort of like all three of those factors coming together, which made the idea for camp equity. And I would say for me, I, of course, professionally lived most of my life in Chicago, but kind of grew up in Kansas city, Missouri and Minneapolis, Minnesota. So definitely 100% Midwestern through and through. 
And I currently live in Minneapolis and moved back to Minneapolis about two years ago. And I live about a mile from where George Floyd took his last breath. And so for me, which is in South Minneapolis, I live in a community called Uptown. And I can just remember, I'll never forget, you know, when the video was released, just instantaneously watching my community, right, respond and literally and figuratively was set on fire and watching that fire just kind of like wave throughout throughout the globe. And similar to Lauren, you know, people were kind of like reaching out to me, both white and black, and I am a black cisgender woman, but people were reaching out to me about like, A, what was happening in Minneapolis. And so trying to give people, you know, this, this kind of almost like reporting, I would say for lack of a better term of like what was happening on the ground since I was so close, but then also just really feeling the burden of pain, pain primarily from black people, black people in Minneapolis, which (laughs) before, you know, people were like, are there black people in Minneapolis? Yes huge, uh, there's a huge population of Black people here, many of whom have migrated from other Midwestern and Southern cities. So, you know, just kind of feeling, just responding to everything that was happening on the ground. And then also at the time I was program director for a foundation here in Minneapolis that serves girls who we provide, we provided grants to girls who were pursuing their dreams and noticing just like the social, emotional kind of impact that COVID and remote learning was having on students and being very concerned about that, being very concerned about what was happening to young young people who, you know, instantly their lives were kind of transformed. And I always say, when things happen to adults that are hard, it's hard. And you can just imagine if it's hard for us, then it's usually 10 times or more worse for young people. So when Lauren texted me and we got on the phone and kind of compared notes about what we were experiencing and what we were witnessing, Camp Equity seemed like the best container at the time to put all of the energy I know that I was feeling and that Lauren was feeling kind of into a structure. You know, we started kind of iterating the idea, moved really quickly. In less than a month, we had built the website, we had raised funding And more importantly, we had received just like an overwhelming response of interest, which was confirmation and affirmation that camp equity was what was needed at the time. And so here we are. I mean, it's a almost hard to believe convergence of factors that kind of led to that perfect, perfect storm. Do you think in a non-pandemic world where maybe Zoom hadn't, you know, Personally, I had never heard of Zoom until last spring when suddenly all of life was in Zoom. You know, Skype had been a thing. People had FaceTimed, you know, now and then for years. But I feel like last spring, we really, the pandemic really forced us to embrace video technology in a way that we just never had. But combined with the, you know, the protests that were happening that sparked around the country, you know, what what was, was that the only difference between, you know, maybe this situation and, you know, why maybe something like Camp Equity didn't begin back after Ferguson in 2014. You know, like there have been similar situations of of just protest and, you know, disbelief at the treatment of black people in this country before. But but what was it, you know, what was the specific catalyst in this instance that really just kind of pushed pushed you to this idea? If there was anything specific you can point to. So that's a great question. And what I would say is that camp equity has existed 
in many iterations throughout history. And I would go back to, you know, as far back as the civil rights movement, when I think about the work that SCLC was doing in terms of educating young people about how to resist, how to make sense of a very complicated and terrifying world that they found themselves in. And in fact, you know, I think about when I lift up the names of people like Ella Baker, who were almost singularly focused on thinking about young people and their role in transforming the social conditions of their communities and of our, ultimately our country. And then I know personally, I was in a program in sixth grade hosted by the Children's Defense Fund called Freedom Schools, which very similarly was all about educating me and other young people about the history of race in this country, the history of social struggle and social justice. And it really just transformed the trajectory of my life. It's one of the reasons why I decided that I wanted to become an educator because of that experience. And so there's always been, in particular, when we look at the Black community and African-Americans in this country, there's always been an intense focus on young people and young people kind of leading the way in terms of transforming society and doing the actions, right, physically and otherwise, putting their bodies on the line in order to make change. So camp equity, I would say, is like the 5.0 version of many of those programs and that work. And it's interesting because it's always, young people are always needed, but they're not always valued. And the burden, I feel, for the last maybe five to 10 years of really educating young people about what's happening has really fallen on families. And if you're fortunate enough to have a family that is interested in kind of like demystifying and articulating and rooting your experience in empathy and in all of the other things that will make you a better human being as an adult, then that's great. But my experience in education has shown me otherwise, that young people who do not have, and, and really parents just don't always know, right? You just don't, you don't always know how to explain some of these things that are happening. And so, yeah, I think Kemp Equity just follows in that legacy. And it just so happens that it's 2020, it was 2020, and we're in a remote virtual learning environment, but we stand on the shoulders of many others who started this work long before us. Absolutely. Everything, Donnie. I mean, this is why Donnie, I think, is the most brilliant person in the entire world, because she speaks so eloquently about everything. You know, and I think what I'll add, because the interesting thing about Camp Equity is that we work with, it's the, it's the first program I've ever worked at that where we work with every type of young person. We're on a sliding scale. You choose yourself what you want to pay. And so we have both campers who are living in poverty, and we also have campers who are part of the 1%, right? We have campers who are in rural North Carolina and we have campers who are in Metro Seattle, like literally all over. And so I think it's also looking at like the, the ways in which different people came to Camp Equity. And speaking as a white person, I do think something that changed in 2020, although much, 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 much too late, of course, was white people really starting to recognize like, oh, this is our fault, right? Like this is on us and my failure to act will continue to perpetuate this harm. Now that's nothing new, right? We've known this always, 
But I do think that that was a big piece of it in people starting to step up into their own accountability. And I will say for me, to be completely honest, like I have stepped up, I think in my compassion for younger people, like I was lucky to be raised in a place where my first grade, our first grade teacher was openly gay, right? Like we talked about these things and it wasn't perfect, but just recognizing that like, as Donnie was saying, like having access to a community where you're actually talking about these issues and learning about social justice from a young age is a privilege, which is, which is sad, right? So we're sort of like, how do we make this accessible to everybody? And then also like, how do we make it that it doesn't need to be white people teaching kids about you know, racial equity. Like we have so many incredible leaders who are already doing the work. How do we shine a spotlight on them to have young people hear and learn from them directly? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And Donnie, I just want to circle back for a minute and just tell you how much I really love the emphasis that you've placed on reflecting and the history of the conversation and how long it really has been happening. We really need to be having those conversations about our roots and kind of the legacy that has been left for us by those that came before, because it is a complicated conversation. And, you know, I was really fortunate in my own family to have some great records and some things that I could access just to be able to dig into that history a little bit. But it's just such an important piece of this whole conversation is understanding a little bit about what came before. And so I think that that's a lesson I hope people just take away from this before we even talk about all the other important lessons is like, it's so important to recognize just where we're coming from and where our families are coming from. And that's just so it's so impactful. And Lauren, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, I think that 2020 was just it was a wake up, but it was too late. But I, I don't know, I, I've heard so many different takes on, on you know, the, the white awakening of 2020. And some of it's like better late than never. And some of it's just, you know, is it too late? I've heard all sides of that conversation. And at the end of the day, it's, it's really refreshing to see some folks who have actually done something and turned around and kind of put some of those feelings that were swirling around last spring into action. Just for the sake of, of folks now, I feel like we've been talking a lot about camp equity in kind of this amorphous language. So if somebody wants to explain just for a minute, like what is camp equity? Maybe how does it function? Just kind of give us like the inch deep mile wide view and then we'll dive in a little bit more. Camp equity is what we call a virtual program for youth that educates them about social justice and equity issues from lived experience leaders. So what happens, um, and we serve Currently, when we first started out, we served fifth through 12th graders. Our most recent cycle, which is currently happening, served third through 12th graders. And essentially, young people sign on to Zoom, and we have what we call an instructor who is a lived experience leader. Individuals like Sarah Minkara, who spoke about disability rights. Individuals like Corey Green, representing an organization called HALA, How Our Lives Link All Together, which is all about mass incarceration. We also covered everything from environmental rights, et cetera. And so the idea is that there are people in the world who see problems in their communities and in our country, and they offer solutions through the work that they do. So our goal at Camp Equity is to put these individuals directly in front of young people to educate them about their journey. So young people are learning that 
you can actually make a career out of serving your community and serving and serving you know the world they're also learning that some of these issues which seem so daunting and so big are actually approachable and manageable so they're learning about what we call column solutionaries they're learning about you know these issues and learning how people are solving them and so sometimes i think when it comes to issues of racial equity and when it comes to issues of human rights, it can seem so abstract where you can just get overwhelmed. You hear about the issue, you hear about the impact that it's making, and you're just like, it's too, it's too difficult. It's not approachable. It's too much. Well, our leaders that we bring in beg to defer, and they, they do so every single day throughout their work. And so young people are learning in community with people who are a different race, who are a different socioeconomic status, who are from a different geographic location, ultimately with the goal of like really just building empathy as well as exposing them to these lived experience leaders who can provide them with tools and resources to kind of like advance and push equity in their own ways. This past cycle, I am super proud. We launched something called Affinity Groups because our focus, this particular camp was called Celebrating Black Lives. And we created affinity groups that were based on how you racially identify. So we have a Black affinity group, we have a non-Black Indigenous people of color affinity group, and then we have a white camper identifying group. And in that space, young people are learning with people who have this shared identity about what it means to be an ally from the white and non-Indigenous POC perspective, or I'll correct myself, as Lauren says, an aspiring ally. And then our Black campers are learning about healing and they're being affirmed and they're learning about how to exist in a world in which so many things are stacked against them. So in a nutshell, Camp Equity virtual online program, educating young people about social justice issues directly from lived experience leaders is what we do. And we're planning to run cycles all throughout the year. We're finishing up our second cycle and we'll be launching our next cycle, which we call Camp um, 101 in the spring of 2021. One of the immediate questions that jumps into my brain is, is third grade too young to start teaching teaching kids about this stuff? I mean, I remember myself as a third grader, and I'll, I'll, I'll date myself here. When I was in third grade, the most impactful memory I have from my, my third grade year in public education was September 11th, 2001. And my teacher, they rolled a, an old TV into our room and flipped on the news at nine in the morning. And we watched the television for two and a half hours and then tried to go back to, to work. My my third grade teacher had a brother who was a United pilot, and she was completely thrown for the entire day until she could figure out where her brother was. And it was very traumatizing. But I'm not sure that my, my how old are third graders? 10? 10-ish? I'm not sure that my 9, 10, 8-year-old brain could have really processed police violence and white supremacy and or maybe i'm just crazy am i crazy or are third graders like really equipped to handle that stuff because maybe they are and i just maybe i maybe i would have been if someone had presented it to me i mean here's the thing right these are the lives that we're living in and so i think that to say oh we want to shield children from the realities that they're facing all that does is it 
allows confusion to come in. It allow, it allows a feeling of a lack of safety. And I mean, obviously things have to be age appropriate, right? One of the things we did for this recent session is we actually split up. So we have two sessions. We have one for third to seventh graders and one for eighth to 12th graders. But I remember when I was in third grade, I watched fried green tomatoes and there was a portrayal of a homeless person. And I tried to sleep outside on my driveway that night because I felt so horrible that there were people in the world that didn't have things. And I love my parents. This is not, you know, anything to my parents. They're wonderful people, but because they didn't know how to talk to me about things, it was sort of this, this sense of like, oh, that happens. There's stuff you can do about it, but it was just never really getting at the root. And one of the, the coolest things, so our white camper affinity group is also split into two different ages. And so we talked to the third to eighth graders first, and you can see how much less unlearning they have to do in order to be able to have an honest conversation, even compared to kids that are only six or seven years older than them, right? Like the for the third graders, being able to have these deep conversations is so much more powerful because honestly, like the claws of the patriarchy and white supremacy and capitalism and all that, like they're in them, but it's not quite as deep. Like I firmly believe as a white person, like we are all racist because we have all embedded within us these constant barrage of images and words. And so we have to actively become anti-racist and not just be non-racist. And for third graders, they've just had less seeped into them at that moment. And so it's it's really fascinating to just be able to watch that difference. So, but back to the question, is it too young? I think, no, like, would we like to create a world in which we wouldn't have to have these conversations? Absolutely. That's not the reality that we're living in and we need to have these conversations. Yeah, and I would totally, totally agree with Lauren here that I don't think there there is no such thing as too young. And I think that is because by nature, we as humans are social creatures. And so the moment that your child is old enough to go to daycare, to go to school, to leave, you know, kind of your purview as a parent, that is the time because, you know, we, when you think about socialization, it starts when we are social. And so it's important that we start with young people because having, you know, I work as a consultant in DEI, outside of my work with Camp Equity. And I can tell you by the time a, a person reaches college, by the time they enter their professional careers, that implicit bias is already concrete, set in stone. And it becomes very, very difficult to change people's minds and hearts at that point. Whereas if you're a young person, before, before you can even develop these stereotypical ideas and harmful ideas about people who are different from you, the fact that you have already had firsthand experience by being in community with others who are like you, it's, you know, there's that cognitive dissonance that takes place that makes it nearly impossible to proceed when you have had that firsthand direct experience. And that's really what Camp Equity is about, right? As Lauren, you know, said in the beginning of the interview, so many young people are in homogenous communities. I know I was <laughs> growing up in Kansas City, like we met the only white people that we that we saw, frankly, were police officers. You know, we did not we did not see. I didn't really experience the flip side of that until I moved to Minneapolis in ninth grade. And so 
the fact that we are able to have young people who are the same age, who are able to identify, to start thinking about their identity very broadly, to start thinking about not just what they have, what's different with other people, with skin color being, you know, kind of the obvious first thing, they're also learning about what 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 privileges they have and what's um, similar. And, and that is how you build community. And in order to really address racism and address in particular institutional racism, institutions are made up of people, right? And so we have to tackle our own internal implicit bias and our own experience with white supremacy in order to break down that institutional racism. And it starts with community. It starts with community and community in a very broad sense, not just the people who have similar identities as you. And I'll stop there. My brain is all over the place right now. I'm thinking so many thoughts. So I I guess I'll start with this one and then we'll kind of jump into my other one in a minute. My first question is, does camp equity kind of serve, and this is just based on my legal education, you know, Brown v. Board happened in the 60s, you know, separate but equal went away, integration became the new thing. And then like a decade later, the Supreme Court basically said, yeah, but, you know, don't integrate schools. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's pretty much what was said. And the end result today, you know, and it's also, you know, due to white flight to the suburbs and it's due to redlining and it's due to so many other things. We really have ended up with basically segregated schools again. And I'm wondering if you kind of see the camp equity model, would this ever be workable? You know, if schools were more interested in engaging young people in social justice conversations from an early age, would it be more conceivable to maybe move back in a direction where some of our schools are maybe more intentionally integrated between communities? So I I think I think so. And I think that I think that integration, though, we have to think about integration beyond just race, right? And I think that is the key. Like I think that when we think about integration, and, and I'll say this because when we think about white supremacy, white supremacy is just kind of like I, I call white supremacy kind of like the big monster, right? Um, and then there are these other monsters like capitalism, et cetera. And what has happened over time is that there are people who are who have economic privilege. There are people who have gender privilege. There are people who have other types of privileges. And I think by interrogating that privilege, you can then make the link to how white supremacy works. And then that is where you get to kind of undoing undoing the structure of how it works and kind of decreasing the harm that is caused. So for example, we do this beautiful activity at Camp Equity called the Will of Identity, which basically looks like a pie, a pizza essentially. And there are different components of one's identity on the the pie, race, economic status, geographic location, religion, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera. And for many of our campers, even those who are in high school, this is the first time that they think about their identity beyond just race, right? They're like, whoa, I never thought about, you know, all of these other different components of my identity and how, although I may be, you know, racially marginalized, I have economic privilege, I have gender privilege, I have religious privilege, et cetera. And I've seen that privilege function in ways that harm people who are different. I think that when it comes to education, we have to do a better job about educating people 
yes, about racial privilege, but about all other types of privilege. And then I do think people have to be in community with others who are different. Because what happens when you're not in community with people who are different, you develop your perception about these other people based on misinformation, limited information, fear. And then that becomes a part of how you identify kind of the other. And so the more that we can remove this notion, this binary of me versus them, us versus you know them, et cetera, then we can go a long way in, in solving a lot of our equity issues because you learn how you are both a victim of kind of privilege, but you also learn how you can victimize and harm others as well. And that changes, that changes things. You know, I know it changed things for me and it's in education and being in kind of integrated educational settings. When young people are on sports teams with other young people who are different, when young people have friends who come and visit their homes and spend time outside of school with them who are different, they don't have those, that kind of us versus them outsider perspective that many young people are raised with in this country. And and if I'll add on to that too, I think, I think it's a both and because I think like I was definitely raised in the nineties where it was all like colorblind. We're all the same. We're all humans. And I remember in college, there were conversations happening in my college about whether or not there needed to be safe spaces for the BIPOC students. And I, and I just really didn't get it. And it was part of one of the reasons we decided to do these affinity groups with our campers and separate them by race, which I can imagine might be controversial to some people is in part because the white campers really needed to learn some stuff that the black campers did not need to learn, right? They, like black campers are very well aware of police brutality and very well aware of the statistics that are happening. And it's like, we do not need to continuously re-traumatize or focus on the harm, I think with our black campers. And a lot of times I, I see that diversity can be used as a way of like, oh good, we have some black kids in our class. So now they can tell us about what it's like to be black, right? Like we had some parents signing up who were like, I wanna sign up my kid, but they're tired of having these conversations with white people, like totally honestly, which is very fair. I have a lot of BIPOC friends that are tired of having these conversations with white people, right? And before we even got started, I was like, Donnie, you know, like I'm gonna mess up like as a white person. And so like, that's that's something we navigate in a partnership too. But so all that to say is like, it's so important that at a baseline and at a foundational level, young people are together and can interact with each other. And I don't think it's just school integration that fixes it, white supremacy is the root. And so we gotta like get at the root of issues. But at the same time, I think it is important that young people also recognize where their differences lay and how they can you know, work to shed those privileges or give up those privileges so they can achieve a more equitable world. Yeah. You guys are fantastic. I'm loving this. And it's been really, I'm just really enjoying myself. I wanted to ask because, and this has come up, Donnie, you just mentioned something about it. And Lauren, I think you just spoke to it a little bit as well, which is this kind of exhaustion that, you know, people who are not white, people who are not straight, people who are differently abled or neurodivergent, like they are constantly just having to explain their experiences and educate you know, the rest of us about what it's like to be them. And so I have to ask, you know, how did you within Camp Equity, how did you determine how to strike a balance between finding educators who have lived experience and 
kind of balancing that with asking, you know, young people to be in the space where like they are the expert on on their their oppression. You know what I mean? Like it seems it seems like that's a lot of work for, you know, just it's, I don't know. That thought wasn't very well put together, but I think you hopefully understand where I'm going with my question. Yeah, I I get it. And I'll take the first part about how did we find instructors and maybe I'll have Donnie take the second part about campers being experts on their own lives and lived experience. I mean, that was why we are the people that come as our instructors are all lived experience leaders who are actively choosing to make combating this this issue. And by this issue, I mean all the issues, right? their life's work. And so we see it as we compensate them well, right? Way too often, Donnie and I experience this brother's hand. If you do social justice work, it's sort of just expected that your labor is free all the time to educate. So nope, we pay them, right? And that's part of how we redistribute our wealthier campers wealth is that we ensure that we're compensating our instructors really well. They are talking about their organizations, many of which are smaller grassroots organizations to a brand new audience that hopefully one day might become volunteers or donors or supporters, or like we share our email lists. And so part of it is both like, okay, you're choosing already to speak on this topic, right? And also hopefully you see this as a mutually beneficial experience. And Donnie can talk more about the amazing work she does with the instructors, get them ready and their feedback, but it's been really exciting because I think there's a sense of energy that comes with talking to young people about these issues, many of them, some of them for the first time, right? And there's this like eager, earnest excitement, which can honestly revitalize people who are kind of used to having the same conversation over and over with people who frankly should know better, right? It brings this new energy. So that's the first part. And I'll let Donnie take it from there. And I would say the question around how do, how do we get kind of the trust in one's experience and expertise, both for campers and for those who are counselors who are instrumental to our model as well. Each week, we have our campers go into breakout sessions with counselors who are a little closer. Lauren and I are both older. Lauren and I are both the same age. We're both 37. So we're old. We're kind of on the old side of things now. (laughs) Um, But our camp counselors tend to be younger professionals. Many of them are still in college. So they're not as far removed, if you will, from the educational experience as Lauren and I are. So that's very helpful because you do almost need what I would call like a guy um, that can kind of help to like translate this very heavy information that can also hold space and build community. We also are very intentional about making sure that our counselors are intersectional in many ways so that our campers can identify with them and Lauren does an amazing job of really just like mapping out campers to cabins to make sure that they are kind of in community with people who are who they can identify with and who they can learn from, et cetera. So I would say that that's the first piece. And I would say that the second piece, generally, we as Americans do not like young people. At least we don't we don't treat them like we like them. How that kind of works out is that we don't affirm young people. We don't honor their ideas and their experience. And we kind of treat them as if like, oh, just wait until, just wait, just wait until you're 18. Just wait until you can vote. Just wait until you're 21. And it's just like, there's almost like this delayed expectation of of living and of kind of stepping into one's power. So at Camp Equity, we teach young people about the power that they have 
the influence that they have, whether that is with their siblings, with their family, with their teachers, you know, we just kind of like really focus on working from an asset-based model, teaching young people what their assets are, what their strengths are, and how they can use that to advance equity for themselves and for others. So yeah, I would say that that's, that's kind of the model for us. It's pretty fantastic. And it's, it really does sound like y'all have covered so much ground in the planning of this to make sure that it's executed super well, which I think is probably a relief to everyone who's in the programming. It probably works really well. But if you could just kind of, you know, circle back one more time to kind of just the practical, like how, how does it work? Do they sign into a group of 10 other kids and they have a conversation for a couple hours? How long's the program? You know, how does it normally run? You know, you talked earlier about like a 101. Is there a 201 and a 301? And are you hoping to someday produce graduates of Camp Equity who will be, you know, equipped with a certain level of knowledge that you're hoping they'll be able to go out into the world with? So great question. And camps are anywhere between six weeks to 12 weeks. And we have currently four different versions of camp or three different versions. We have Camp 101 which is basically just like introductory. If you've never heard of social justice, if you've never heard of any of these issues, that is kind of like the beginner experience for our campers. So that's Camp 101. Then we have Camp 201, which is kind of a little bit more advanced. It's meant for young people who may already have a little bit of knowledge about equity issues and and kind of challenges. They've also maybe even taken our Camp 101 program or participated in a program like it. And it's just meant to kind of go a little bit deeper into some of the issues. And then we have our deep dives. Deep dives are more thematic, topical, and they're focused on one particular movement and looking at many different aspects of that movement. So We're currently running our first deep dive, which is about celebrating Black lives. Campers are learning about everything from hip hop and literacy to local community organizing to venture capitalism in historically Black colleges and universities. So campers are just like learning about the Black experience from many different lenses. And then camp usually meets once per week for campers. Our sessions are 90 minutes. And in that time, they are hearing from instructors, participating in their breakout sessions or breakout rooms that we call cabins. And then they're doing a Q&A with our instructors for the week. We also have our affinity groups that meet. We do special events. So for example, right after the election, literally the day after the election last year, when (laughs) so much was up in the air and there was so much confusion, We hosted an event where we invited campers to just come and hang out and talk about what they were feeling and ask questions, et cetera. We did a similar event shortly after the initial verdict or the initial news from Breonna Taylor's legal proceedings happened. We we kind of held a gathering for campers to come and just talk about how they were feeling. We did some affirmation exercises, et cetera. And so Really, we're just kind of a community. And I think one of our parents framed it best when essentially she said that her daughter kind of for the first time felt like not only did she like develop kind of a language to articulate a lot of the things that she was experiencing, she also had found her people, right? And so our goal is for young people to find their people and for them to find a sense of belonging and community with camp. And then long-term, We really just want our campers to 
learn how to advance equity. So some of our metrics include whether or not young people are continuing these conversations outside of and beyond camp, whether or not they are taking direct action, like participating in a protest, like signing a petition, like doing any direct action in response to a social justice issue or challenge. And then ultimately, we just want them wherever they go in their lives to make things better for other people, to operate from a position where they're not centering themselves, but where they are really thinking about kind of who's not in the room, who's not present, and when and where possible doing what I like to call passing the mic, letting people who are most impacted, directly impacted, speak for themselves and giving them the space and the floor to do that. And that needs to happen in every sector, right? Because when, when that happens, then we are, we are operating from a perspective that is not white supremacy, that is not patriarchal, and that is not harmful to so many people or not as harmful, right, to other people. And so yes, how camp works and people can sign up by visiting our website, campequity.com. And again, we believe in removing all barriers of access. So whether you have no money, whether you have, I like to call it negative money, <laughs> whether you have negative money or whether you are fortunate and you are in a great financial position, there's a spot for, for your kids at Camp Equity. And we hope that you will consider joining us. There's definitely a part of me that wishes I was like nine years old and could be signed up for Camp Equity right now because I'm I'm that stuff you said earlier about how like as people get into their 20s and into their like early 30s and they're just it's so much harder to deprogram all of that. Gosh, it's true. I would give anything to go back to like nine and start that process 15 years earlier, I think would just have made a huge monumental difference in my life. We actually know of many parents who sit in to the kids sessions and they'll sometimes email us and be like, I don't know if I'm supposed to listen or not, but I just wanted to say that I really appreciate, because these are things that adults aren't, aren't talking about or having these conversations about. I also lead accountability groups to work through Layla Saad's Me and White Supremacy book. And, you know, so I, I host around like a hundred white adults every quarter to work through the book. And it, it is, it's like the, just the community within which to do it is incredible. And, you know, Brian Stevenson has this amazing quote where he's learning, he's talking about the work he wants to do and advocating against the death penalty. And he's told that, that like, this is going to be hard, hard, hard. So you have to be brave, brave, brave. And this work is impossible to do alone. And sometimes kids are like bullied for caring about issues. We know that that's happened to a lot of our campers. So to see them log on each week and say hi to the other kids who are across the country who they never would have met otherwise is just, it's really honestly this magical feeling. And I just, we just feel really lucky that we get to do it. And I would say feedback is super important. So we, a lot of our decisions are not just like Lauren and I and Alex, who's our chief of staff, just saying, let's do this. Like we, as much as possible, are checking in with our parents, with our campers, with our instructors about what's working, what's not, how can we improve? What do they actually want or need? Because, you know, my philosophy is that kids vote with their feet. You know, if you're, if you're ever concerned about whether or not young people are into something, they show up for what they want to show up and then they don't. 
for what they what they don't, you know, right? And so as much as possible, just getting that feedback through surveys, through focus groups, through just asking, hey, what do you think about this? That's another way of like affirming young people, but also making sure that the model that we are delivering is what is best for them and kind of like what they feel like they need. That's fantastic. I just, I hope someday, you know, I have no idea when I'll have children who are old enough to be in this program, but I'm hoping that down the road, maybe it'll still be around and my kids will be able to get plugged into this or to a similar program. Maybe Camp Equity will help spark, you know, a revolution in anti-racist and, you know, other intersectional types of education in the public education sector or who knows. Just kind of as we wrap up here, as you're both maybe launching your own parenting journeys, you know, what are the things that you've learned thus far from Camp Equity that you plan on kind of turning around and maybe changing or altering how you raise your own kids? I am at the moment 29 weeks pregnant and will be expecting my first baby girl whose name is Amelia in mid-April. And what I would say, what Camp Equity and this experience has kind of taught me is just how important it is to make sure that my daughter is around other people and that she interacts with thoughts and leaders and people who look and think differently than me. Because because I believe that that is the way that she will, I think it's important for children to develop into their own people. And I think a lot of times, as I've seen this in education, you know, when I taught high school, I would have parents in ninth grade come and tell me, my job was to get their kid into Harvard. And it was just like, you know, I remember just feeling so sad for the kids whose lives had been pretty much structured and they had little choice, no decision-making and everything was like preset for them. And so for me, I just really look forward to learning who my daughter is as a person because I don't know, right? And creating experiences and opportunities that really help her to develop into the person that she wants to become and that she can become independent of her dad and my whatever we want, right? It's kind of where I'm at with it. Now that may change. Again, I'm a first time mama, so I don't know anything. <laughs> and, you know, check back in in five years and 10 years and let's talk then, but that's kind of where I'm at now. I feel like it's so, and we were talking about this last Saturday at our white camper affinity group where a camper was saying like, well, but I don't live around, I live in all with white people. And it's sort of like, all right, so what are you going to do about it? Right. And so it's not pretending that the situation is not the way it is, but it's recognizing that like we can create the worlds in which we want to live in. And I feel like I'm getting a little cheesy right now, but it really is that case. And, and just as Donnie was saying, it's, I think it's about meeting young people where they're at and exploring their passions and interests in a way to open up entire worlds to them. So they both see that they belong in it and they can be an active part of changing it. Now, the second answer I'll give, which is sort of off the rails and I don't want to totally derail us, but like, we got to change childcare in this country. We got to change work culture. We got to change everything, right? Like Donnie and I very specifically, when we started Camp Equity, it was meant to be a one-off project. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it was sort of just meant to be like, let's do this thing. And when we had donors approach us saying they wanted to see it continue, we were sort of like, cool. We've both done the burnout. You know, when I first started my nonprofit, I was 
an adjunct law professor. I was running a domestic violence legal unit. I was babysitting on the weekends and I was also starting Atlas. And that's me as a white woman, right? Like the, the amount of sacrifice and hustle we expect from our social change leaders is not sustainable and quite frankly, insulting sometimes. There's sort of this mindset of like, oh, if you're doing good and you're creating change, you should have to sacrifice. And so we are very, very privileged to have found donors that believe in changing that narrative, who are able to pay for paid parental leave, right? So we're very, I just want to make sure that we acknowledge that privilege that we have also, and that it shouldn't be a privilege, right? That we should have a country that has childcare and has healthcare and has these very basic universal needs that are often not met, which cause a lot more struggle for everyone. We have probably about 30 seconds here just to kind of wrap up. If you had to kind of package, you know, a brief statement of it could be encouragement, it could be, you know, a lesson learned, it could be anything. I usually try to have guests kind of leave with like a little I had a friend in law school who called them finding the nuggets in in legal cases, kind of like nuggets in your life that have been super important to you that you'd just like to pass on. No pressure there, Win. <laughs> I would say my nugget would be don't be afraid to learn out loud. I think that so often, especially as parents, especially as educators, especially as adults who work with young people, we have this perception that we have to always have it all figured out and that we have to always have the answer. And honestly, young people learn more from us by watching us navigate challenges and navigate not knowing. Like we teach our counselors at Camp Equity, don't be afraid to say, I don't know, (laughs) right? I don't know, but let's kind of figure this out together. And so that will be my nugget. It's just like, don't be afraid to learn out loud because young people are going to learn so much more from you by watching you learn than by hearing what you've already learned, hearing what you've already figured out. So just make learning a process and make it a visible process so that young people can kind of pick up from you, whether that's your own children or young people that you are fortunate to have in your life. I would say, don't forget the joy. Camp Equity starts with and ends with a dance party at the beginning of every session because life is hard and painful and unfair. And it's also gorgeous and beautiful and full of love and joy. And so just as we have to work to dismantle, we have to work to build that spark and that magic and that joy of community. I love it. What a great note to end on too. Thank you both so much for being a part of this conversation. And I'm sure that there will probably be hopefully some folks who reach out and have questions about camp equity and about how to get involved. And I would love to have you on, you know, down the road after this has been going on for a while to see how things have changed, to hear about how your parenting journeys are going. But it's been a unique privilege and a a really, you know, I just feel honored that you took the time to come on today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. And I'll say a plug, our hope is that we will have Camp Equity in person for the summer of 2022. So if you own a summer camp and you would like to get in touch with us, (laughs) feel free to email us. But um, yes, no, thank you for having us. This was a great privilege. Thank you for having us. Thanks everyone for listening. Connect with us on Instagram, our website, Facebook, LinkedIn. We're always seeking partners. We're always seeking feedback, resources, et cetera. Um, So don't hesitate to reach out.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Raising Little Resistors. As an updated slash added announcement, as of the publishing of this episode in the summer of 2021, Camp Equity has officially begun offering their first ever family programs. Donnie is running a program called Healing in Community for the BIPOC campers and family members, and Lauren will be running Uprooting White Supremacy with White Families, so be sure to check that out. As always, you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and on our Buzzsprout landing page. I'm immensely grateful for your continued interest in this project, and I'd love to hear from you about possible upcoming guests and future topics. If you're interested in being a guest, please let me know. I love connecting with new people, and I definitely look forward to hanging out with old friends. Thank you again. My thanks to Donnie and Lauren for being incredible and so patient with me. I'm on this journey to find out how to raise the next generation of world changers. I'm so glad you're here with me. Peace and love, everybody. See you next time. As always, a special thanks to Robert Martin for our theme, Crystal Hinckley for graphic design, to my wife Kristen for her constant support, Professor Emily Ho for her support, and to all my friends and family, thank you.